I'm Adam Lippi, and this is another installment in a Regrettable Moment of Sincerity series of podcasts with directors. This time I'll be interviewing Alexis Brake, the director of the documentary Shadow Billionaire, which is about the 1995 death of billionaire and DHL magnate Larry Hilblum, his secluded lifestyle on the island of Saipan, and how his protection-free sexual activities with very young virgin girls in Vietnam and the Philippines clouded the unaccounted-for issue of illegitimate children in his will, leaving the children and Hoblum's former business partners squabbling over the money. During the interview, you'll hear me refer to Peter Manso, who's a journalist who talks about Hilblum during mostly the first 20 minutes of the film, and Alexis mentions David Lujan, who's the most vociferous, tenacious, and colorful of the lawyers who represented the children. If you'd like to read my review of the movie, go to regrettablesincerity.com and search for Shadow Billionaire. What, uh, I mean, I guess it, it, it was probably a struggle in terms of what to include about Hillblum, where we're not just completely revolted. I mean, I guess we were anyway, but were there any details that you left out because you thought there's no way that anyone would want to be interested in this guy now that I've presented him as a horrible scumbag? Um, well, I guess, one, I, I don't necessarily think I presented him as a horrible scumbag. <laughs> I mean, I tried not to editorialize too much. I felt like I was pretty straightforward. No, no, no not you, but in the sense that, you know, the more you show of him taking advantage of these, these girls, the worse he right. was, and the less yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I didn't, I, I wouldn't say that I censored it. I, what I left out was editorial comments. Like, you'll notice in the film that people sort of are giving the facts and, and accounts of what he did from the women or that he went into these bars and or explaining the situation of the bars. But I did leave out any really judgmental statements that would specifically call him something, you know, or other. It's, and I, I did that and, and because I think, you know, part of the experience of watching a film is to have your own subjective experience. And I wanted, you know, I also highlighted, I think, some of the biggest accomplishments of his life. Not all of them, because he's incredibly accomplished, but the, um, you know, the stuff, the background of DHL or his time in, in both and growing up, I think really established that this is sort of like someone of, you know, extraordinary intelligence and, uh, and ingenuity. He's also a really flawed person. But I, like I said, I think I tried, to, I tried to leave out editorial statements of like, oh, this is so gross, or he was a bad person, or anything like that. It's more like he went here and did this and let the audience interpret that. You know, obviously some things like having relationships with underage girls are going to make most people very uncomfortable with him. But I, I, I don't know, I think maybe because I spent so much time on the film and because I think it's important when you're making a documentary to be somewhat um, objective, I don't feel like I was passing um, that much judgment on him myself. I think I came to see him as just like a very complex person and, and there are things he did that I really admired and things he did that I, you know, quite the opposite, you know. You know, obviously in, in terms of his sex life, I thought it was fascinating that, that they tried so hard to cover that up after he went missing when he clearly had no compunction about it. For, for better or for worse, you know, and, and, and it doesn't, it certainly didn't justify it to, to not have remorse or feelings about it, but it's very interesting that he wasn't conflicted about it at all, and it was really the people around him that turned it into his deep, dark secret. In his lifetime, it was not his deep, dark secret. Well, there's a little bit of his, you know, the fact that his girlfriend didn't seem to know that much. I, you know, I have to say, she, she knew enough to, uh, 
to write her name on his underwear. Right. <laughs> I've never done that. <laughs> you know, I mean, I don't think I don't think he came home and relayed stories to her. But I think, you know, when you when you date someone with a sexual appetite like that, I think you have to be aware to some degree of what's going on. Now, considering you wanted to remain as objective as possible, did that mean cutting down the amount of footage with Peter Manso? And is there a way that you could um, cut him out, if possible, in a director's cut? I, you, you, um, I have to say that I... I, I really, uh, really disliked him, is my point. Yeah. Um, a lot of people really like him. I really liked him. Um, I... Uh, I think that I think he wrote a really good article on the case, and I know that he has like a certain posture and presence in the film. I liked that it was in counterpoint to the other characters of the film, and I also I don't think it's really that I don't think you necessarily have to like him. He's not there to be. He's not. Um, you know, I want you to like David Lujan, but right. I don't particularly. Um, What's well, that? He came off as Christopher Hitchens without a sense of humor. <laughs> uh, um, you know, if, in the audiences I've seen it in, you know, I feel like a lot of people find him entertaining. I'm sure a lot of people feel the way you do, too. But I, I think he does a good job of of contextualizing certain things in the case and doing it in, in more layman's terms. It's very difficult to have a film where most of your subjects are lawyers because they don't talk in plain English. Um, and no matter how much you coach them or go over and have them repeat things, it's just not in their nature, I don't think. It, well, it wasn't, I, you know, I didn't mind his language at all. That's fine. It was just he was so satisfied with himself. And you could... No, I know, but I'm saying he's not a lawyer. Was able to talk about and explain certain things in a way that you know some of the more complicated aspects of the case, like when they took over the bank. I mean, if you hear the way the lawyers explain it, it takes some hours, and it's the most convoluted thing in the world. And no, it seemed like no amount of interviewing was going to to cure that. And the best solution was to have somebody who who knew how to present it to a different type of audience than you know a, a judge or a jury. Um, but no, yeah, I, I, you know, I can, I can totally appreciate he's a smug guy. I'm sure he'd be the first to admit that. Um, but he's also, you know, he also, he was there. He met a lot of the people, and he uh, wrote, a, he wrote one of the first articles about, about the case. And um, uh, you know, to, to me, I, I think, I think he helps the film more than he hurts it. Do you think of, um, how do you think of festivals? Because I think of it as kind of as fool's gold. Because you get into something and it guarantees absolutely nothing, and then if the movie sits around for too long, nobody's interested anymore. Right. I mean, it's, yeah, it's definitely tricky, and it's even trickier now because the market is really depressed. And um, it, there was, you know, a period of time when there was excitement of festivals and getting into certain festivals guaranteed a bidding war over your film. But I also think, like, something else you're saying now, like what people in maybe a broader audience want to see. And what people at festivals want to see are not always the same things. I mean, there's a very specific type of documentary audience that attends festivals, and then there's everyone else. Right. <laughs> you know, I think one thing that happens a lot in documentaries is it becomes a little bit of a competition of who can make the saddest film, and they're not necessarily what people want to see, you know, in a more commercial sense. Right now, for instance, it's more of a buyer's market, so there's no reason to have a bit for a buyer to have a bit anymore at a festival. There's less of a frenzy, I guess, at festivals because the economy is slow. There's, there's always something odd about uh, documentaries is they tend to be, and your, your film doesn't do this so much, but they tend to be about subjects 
that might attempt to sway conservative audiences into opening up their minds, you know, Shut Up and Sing or any Michael Moore documentary, and, and yet they only play in places which are more liberally oriented, like you know, New York and LA and big cities, so it's not reaching, it's, it's preaching the converted, Jesus camps the same way. Is there any fear within the documentary community that they're doing that, or they're not even aware? I think it's a danger that people fall into. I think film, I think I think when I'm saying it's like a competition who can make the saddest film and then, and I don't feel like lots of a film is like taking your medicine. And I think that's a problem a lot of documentaries fall into is people sort of feel like seeing them is like, they feel like, oh, I'm going to go do a good deed this weekend and see a documentary, not like, oh, I'm going to go and enjoy something in an entertaining story. And I think it'd be nice to see documentaries make more of an effort to contain a message and affirm the human condition or whatever else they set out to do without having to be so journalistic. The problem a lot of documentaries fall in. And now it's starting to move back. I mean, the movie, like Man on Wire, was, I think, such a great victory for all of us and then it won the Academy Award because it is a very entertaining, artful film. It's not overtly political, even though I think it has, like, some very profound statements in the film, and it uses reenactments. And when Errol Morris did At the Blue Line, it wasn't eligible for an Academy Award because he used reenactments. And there was this perception that a documentary had to just be so, you know, much like a, I don't know, like more of like what you just expect in the History Channel uh, episode or something like that, than being this artistic, experimental medium that relies on um, real-life footage and real-life events. So what is your next film that you're working on? My next film that I'm directing, which is about the corner of Los Angeles, Dr. Thomas Noguchi. And um, he did, you know, Sharon Tate and Marilyn Monroe and RFK and numerous autopsies. So it's a little bit of like an alternative history of Los Angeles and of the 60s through these, these deaths seem to be, have this like, enduring fascination. I mean, some of them were just recently featured on the cover of Newsweek. It's, it's you know, 50 years later. And so he was also a very polarizing figure, really controversial. He kept getting fired and reinstated, and he, you know, got the, the pejorative uh, corner to the stars because he tended to be a little bit of a, he, he tended to like to be in front of the media. Um, he wrote a bestseller after he was removed. But he's, you know, I think ultimately he was really a pioneer in forensics and a really fascinating person um, who was really misunderstood and really ahead of his time and and I think so anyway so show Quincy was based on him he's a really interesting guy so that is my my next film now in, the, in the films that you see at festivals that are not your own but haven't got the exposure that you thought they would or deserved what what films in particular stick out to you one is called in a dream okay which if you're in Philadelphia, it's, it's about the guy that does all of those mosaic buildings mm-hmm. downtown, um, and it's sort of like a story of the way, I don't know, it's, it's just about the family. It's, it's, one of the things that's really hard about pitching this film is it's hard to describe the story, but it's really, really compelling and it's really, really artfully done. Um, and so I would recommend that film. And I think it played on HBO too, and now Indie Picks is released to TV. And then um, another film, which is called Of All These Things, which is about a friend of mine's 
father who was a hit songwriter in the 70s and 80s and he um, basically wrote this album that didn't get any attention in in the U.S. but ended up becoming a really um, hit album in the Philippines and he was quite a big star there and, and they adapted, adopted one of his songs as like their Valentine's Day theme and so he had since retired from music writing he's a real estate agent Boko Raton and he went in his 60s and toured there to, like playing for audiences aside the Madison Square Garden um, so he's a very devoted fan to the Philippines even when he's never really performed in front of anyone before so it's a really it's a very funny but also really heartwarming story sort of captures, you know, I think, I don't know how many people have things they always dreamed of doing and find themselves in their 60s having not done them, and he went back and did it, so it's, it's, a, it's a really cool film. It also proves that all great artists eventually retire to become real estate agents, which is true of um, Harry Reams as well. Yeah, <laughs> um, that is, I won't argue with that. Um, maybe I'll be selling you a house one day. <laughs> 